I believe that it's a real problem. I have to ask you about controversy now of the brain injuries that are associated with the head trauma from sports. I don't know if you know, but I actually worked for the NFL as a sidelines concussion doctor. What happens inside that tent that we can't see on television? You were just listening to me talk to one of the most interesting medical professionals you're ever going to have the opportunity to listen to. It was J. Patrick Johnson, MD. And let me tell you, this guy has done it all. He is a renowned neurosurgeon that specializes in spinal disorders. He is the director of the Institute for Spinal Disorders at Cedars since 2001. Before that, he was at UCLA with their comprehensive spine center there from 93 to 01. He's the director of the California Association of neurosurgeons, and he's really doing some breakthrough work with stem cells. In fact, he's the director of education and co-director of the Spine Stem Cell Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Hospital here in L.A., He's got a medical degree. He's got a master's degree in neuroanatomy from the Oregon Health Science University. He's been published in over 500 manuscripts across time. And this is one of those guys that goes around and trains people all over the world with this not-for-profit organization that he has. He's worked in Peru, Cambodia, Chile, Russia, Honduras, Germany, and he's always on the cutting edge. In fact, he's done a computer-guided endoscopic neurosurgery on the thoracic spine, which really gets into delicate and fine-line sort of things. He's performed over 10,000 surgeries. And you heard us talking about that tent on the sidelines at NFL games. When players go in that tent, he's the guy that's in there. And let me tell you, he's who you want working on you if there's something wrong with your brain or your spine. He's operated on me more than once. He's operated on my friends, family, and loved ones because he's the best of the best. I don't care where you are in the country. If you can get to Pat Johnson, that's where you want to go. His business is the spine practice, and he practices at Cedars-Sinai Hospital here, so he's easy to find and he is really giving us some insight on how medicine is changing. Uh, In fact, they're identifying blood markers that can tell if someone is likely to have CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, these brain injuries that we're so worried about with repeated trauma to the head. So we talk about some interesting things here, and you may think, oh, this is gonna be too much detail. He has a way of breaking things down where you really understand it. And he deals a lot with degenerative changes in the spine and the brain. So listen up, because you're getting ready to learn some things. He has a way of making this really understandable. So here we go. You look like a man with a real job. <laughs> What's up? How's it going? Great to see you. Good to see you. Great to see you. How's everything? Yeah, I got a real job. I just came from the job. So. Yeah. I understand you've had a busy day. Had a busy week. Yeah. Don't you always? Uh, yes. I'm never well, never changes. Well, I'm glad to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. So how do you like the man cave here? Hey, I like it. I like it. I was uh, just saying, my shop doesn't look quite this good. Yeah, well, I borrowed Robin's car. I had my 57 in here before, but I pulled Robin's car in now, so it looks a little fancier. 
57. 57. 57 Chevy. Chevy. Really? Yeah. I'll have to show it to you. Hard top? Uh, no. Convertible? Convertible. Oh. Black, red interior. Oh. I had everything in its stock until it got stolen, and then I got it back. They actually really? recovered it. So it got trashed. And so when I started redoing it, I thought, yeah, what the hell? So I took the engine out and I'm now running about 700 horsepower with Flowmaster L48 headers and all. And it's uh, really a lot of fun. I didn't know you're a hot rod guy. Oh yeah. It runs on pure testosterone. You don't even put gas in it. <laughs> so, well, are you curious why I wanted to talk to you? Uh, well, you gave me a little idea. Uh, that you think I, I do something unique, which... I don't think you do something unique. Come on. <laughs> I mean, all humility aside. My goal in doing this podcast is I want to talk to the top experts in the world. I want to talk to the people that are the best at what they do. You know the regard with which I hold you, and you know what role you played in my life and my family, both directly and indirectly. But I first wanted to know about you because you're always behind a mask. People don't see you. And usually we're rolling into the operating room and you know we're unconscious within seconds. And then you take our bodies apart and put them back together again. So I want to start out by just talking about you. And I want people to know, because you have a very interesting life aside from just what you do in medicine. Where'd you go to medical school first? I went to medical school in Oregon at uh, Oregon Health Sciences University in right. Portland, Oregon. Right. Where did you do your residency and all of that? I came to Los Angeles and did my residency at UCLA. Then I finished college, finished medical school. Uh, I did some graduate work and research, and then I started my residency. Oh, you actually did research before you went to your residency? Yes. What was the research in? Yeah. Um, endocrinology of how the brain works. Really? Mm -hmm. Then you started your residency, and that goes six or seven years. What do you do your first year different from what you do in your sixth or seventh year? Your first year, you, you get to run around and do all what we call the scut work, and, and you get to take care of patients, and you take care of all the administrative and paperwork, and you get to go see patients when they come in the emergency room, and you get to go see them on the ward, and you, and you help out with the doctors. But it, it is like an apprentice. And each year you have a, a graded advancement in what you do in your responsibilities. And you go to the operating room a little bit when you're an intern and a first year resident. And each year it's more responsibility and you get to the end where you're supposed to be able to be a functioning and independent surgeon all by yourself. That's the goal. By the time you finish that, how many procedures have you done over that six or seven years? Uh, two or 3,000 depending on the two or 3,000. Yeah. I think people don't know this. And that's what I think is so interesting. As you say, you finished your college, you finished medical school and medical school took you how long? Uh, four years of medical school. And I did a few years of graduate research mixed in with it. So I spent a couple extra years. Okay. So six years, then you spend six or seven years and you've done two or 3,000 procedures. When I say done, I mean, some of it was you're a potted plant in the room to start with, and you know, you're handing them stuff and watching, and then it gets more and more and more as you go along, right? That's, that's correct. So even when somebody walks in to a freshly minted neurosurgeon that has gone your track, 
they have been through two or 3,000 procedures by the time that first patient walks in. When you started your practice, where did you start it to begin with? I started at UCLA and I worked at the county hospital. I also worked at the VA. So I had a job with several different hats. Yeah. And so it, it gave me a lot of diversity. But when you started out and you knew you were new, there was a day where you woke up and for the first time you were in practice for yourself, <laughs> right? There was a time where you picked up that knife and everybody was looking at you. There was nobody else to look at. Uh, that's correct. Actually, the, the more frightening component of it was I, I turned around and looked behind me and said, there's nobody here to back me up. Did that moment hit you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it certainly does. In fact, as you go through your first weeks, months, and even into years, you still, you kind of turn around and you look and you say, gee, where's that guy who was helping me out? One of my professors, yeah. you know, as I wish one of them were here right now, you know, when I'm in a tight spot, you know, and things are, things are not going well or something's more challenging than I'm ready to handle. So what do you say to yourself in those situations? My gosh, you got to figure out how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why you have partners. When you go into practice, uh, you know, some people do go into practice all by themselves and solo, but they will have other surgeons assist them. Right. So if somebody goes out into practice and they'll have one of the older surgeons come with them and they assist because you really need an assistant. You know, you need a third and fourth hand and I only got two. So that's how a lot of guys do it that are out in practice at your very university or your big programs. You know, you have other people and the mentoring, it continues. And it is very collegial like that, right? Yes, it does. I mean, you guys really do. It's not competitive. It's collegial. Correct. You have been so great in taking care of me and my family. And at times, it's involved other hospitals and other doctors and other specialists that don't practice where you do. And I listen to you guys talk, and it's like you went to high school together. I mean, it's like instantly everybody's pulling in the same direction. Everybody puts the patient's interest right up front, right in the beginning. That's the way it's supposed to work. Well, it does with you. That's I mean, I, but well, of course, I, I, I do have Pat Johnson calling. That does help. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, to quote my brother, he says, you reach a stage in life that you don't have, you don't have competitors. You just have colleagues. I can tell you from a patient standpoint, that's how it looks. I'm not, don't want to embarrass you, but you are Certainly well-regarded among your colleagues, I can tell you. It makes what I do fun. I don't really have what I consider challenges anymore. I, I consider the operation that I did today, you know, it's some incredible operation. that it's just not done many places anywhere in the country or the world. And it's like, we just have fun doing them. Obviously, without violating any confidences whatsoever, give us an overview of what you did today. I did an operation on a, a colleague in my industry, actually, who came to me about a year ago, and he had a problem in his neck and he was going paralyzed from it. He had a problem that likely dates back to when he was a college athlete. And he probably had a fracture in his neck and he had this funny deformity of his neck where we call it a swan neck, where the vertebra actually kind of had this curve. And even though we operated on him eight months ago and he got better, he was still having problems because the curvature uh, created a stretch of his spinal cord and so the spinal cord is on tension. So we had to actually go in the, in the back of this guy's neck as a first stage. And then a second stage, we went in the front. And then the third stage, we went in the back. So I explain it to people and I'm 
I'm very candid about it. I say, in a very controlled way, we had to break his neck in a couple places, and we had to straighten it back out and do some reconstruction on the backside, the front side, and then go to the backside. We did three stages. Do you expect to have a resolution from that? I think this guy's going to get better to the point that he can function. I'm not sure he's ever going to go back to practice, but uh, he's going to be able to walk and take care of himself, and he's uh, going to go back and do his research work. He's got another career which he's going to be able to pursue. I'm happy for him that we could help him out. And, you know, time's going to tell over the coming months. We live in L.A. What difference does it make to people living in this market versus somebody living in a rural market if they have a major acute problem in terms of life expectancy? You know what's great about this country is that We have such an incredibly high level of care almost everywhere. I would say for about 90, 95% of problems that occur, most every reasonable size city of 50, 70, 100,000, there's great quality care. There really is. We're just so fortunate in this country. That doesn't exist in Eastern European countries. I know I've been to those places. How many surgeries have you done, would you say, in your career? Do you keep a tally? I think it's top 10,000 now. Over 10,000 times you've cut people open. Yep. And they've not all been brain and spinal cord, correct? You've done some heart work as well, right? Well, when I was in training, I I did all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I I learned a lot. I had fun. It was a great experience growing up and going through that and seeing all of these different things and learning. Do you ever wish you were doing a different kind of surgery or are you totally passionate about what you're doing now? I am completely happy that I made the choice that I did because when I was young and thinking about where I wanted to go in medicine and what discipline, um, I thought I wanted to be a cardiac surgeon. Uh I did a lot of it when I was in training at UCLA and I had the opportunity to work with the top people in the world. And that's who inspired me. There's some guys there that just inspired me and says, I want to be like them. These guys are incredible. And you did a number of open-heart surgeries that you were involved in there, correct? I got the opportunity to work on the cardiac service there and open people's chests up, which when I was a young resident, you usually didn't get to do. But just I was in the right place at the right time, and I I got to do a lot of big things, you know, outside of my intended discipline, which was just an incredible experience. You work on the spine, and you've worked on mine in different ways including surgery, very successfully, I might add. I know I'm not the best on follow-ups. I mean, I'm like, I mean, everything's, everything's working. And in record time, actually. Do people wait too long? Generally, when somebody comes into your office, are you looking at them thinking, you're here too early, you're here too late? Um, it's not very often that I say that somebody came in too late. Occasionally. Occasionally. I got a few of them that are going through my mind right now. And, you know, but I would say that people have had enough awareness. I think the things like the Internet have made just the awareness of what people are. If somebody has problems walking or their arm doesn't work or something, and pain is usually a big motivator as well. But not everybody has, has pain. I was not having pain when you operated on my neck. I wasn't having pain, but, you know, I play tennis every day. It was my left arm. I tossed the ball, and all of a sudden, I was like throwing it over the fence. Then I was throwing it over here, and it was like the nerves 
were working and they weren't working and I didn't have the control. And then all of a sudden, the arm looked like it was withering. It was starting to atrophy and it started happening really fast. That's when I called and said, well, what the hell's going on? And you were on it pretty quick. You recall I came in after taping one day. You said, I'll give you one more day, but then you got to get in here and do it. Was that pushing too late? I mean, should I have been there sooner? Uh, you probably fall into that category a little bit. Yeah, I was okay. going to ask you, how's your tennis game doing? So, you know, yeah. You're tossing the ball okay? Is it, well, I've it had is to, your, It is your left hand. I, I've had to arm. retrain it. That muscle memory really got disrupted and went away. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put you into the category of one of those that waited a little long. Yeah, maybe. When you come in and the arms, you know, the shoulders lost some muscle and you're having a hard time holding it up. And I said, yeah, you probably need to come see me a little sooner. You guys are doing some amazing things right now that I want to talk about with regard to ALS and stem cell. Can you talk about that a little bit in a way that people can understand it? ALS is a disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, where there is a loss of the neurons inside of the spinal cord. And so people have an an inexorable progression to death. And from the time of diagnosis, it's one to three years and most people are dead. Uh, there are some people that have lived a long time. You know, Stephen Hawking lived decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not an ALS expert. You know, I'm a neurosurgical expert, and we have an incredible team at Cedars, which uh, you know, I have to give credit to uh, Clive Svensson's a brilliant scientist, and uh, the work that he's done in his laboratory literally over the past decade. This started back in you know, the early 2000s that uh, uh, regeneration of things with stem cells. And we're doing things that, are, that we couldn't even talk about 10 years ago. Okay, we're putting genetically engineered fetal stem cells into the spinal cord of people with ALS. And we're following them now for the following years that they're gonna be alive. And then we're gonna study their spinal cord after they pass away. And we're looking at the next steps. The next steps are we, we're injecting stem cells into the lower spinal cord of people that would affect their lower extremities. Uh, We're looking at a next phase of either doing it in the cervical spine, which would affect their upper extremities and also breathing. This is an exciting time to be in your field. You're really able to do some things now that weren't even conceptualized 10 years ago. As of right now, there are two institutions in the United States that are doing it. And uh, I'm fortunate to be here and have the opportunity to work with an incredible group of people. This is not me individually. I'm the surgeon. I'm the delivery man. Yeah. I got great people. It it takes not just a village. It takes an army. Truly takes an army to do these things. We're in an opioid epidemic in America right now. Are there things that can be done, need to be done to stem this tide? Are doctors giving these opioids too freely? I was looking at some research recently that said there are currently enough opioid prescriptions written for every man, woman, and child in America to have their own bottle. And that if you're taking these opioids seven days after they're prescribed, your chance of being addicted at one year is 12%. If you're taking them 30 days after they were first prescribed, your likelihood of being addicted at one year is 31%. What do we do about this? It is a huge problem. And you have an incredible number of statistics that are 
more detail than I know. Um, I, I do know that as a surgeon, um, it's a very small number of surgical patients that ever become part of that addiction population. Okay, I, I operate on people every week and we treat them with opioids um, and we carefully monitor them, but it's, it's not that we have this overwhelming worry that we're gonna be creating all the next new addicts. We really don't. It's something that uh, when somebody has an injury, they need an operation for it, or they have any kind of malady that requires some type of pain relief, it's really infrequent is that, and you probably know the numbers, it's some very small single digits. It's three or 4% Correct. or something like that. I know when you did my cervical surgery, I was on pain medication in the hospital. And then the next day, I think I took like one pain med and divided it split it up during the day and took Tylenol in between, something like that. And then from there on, it was just Tylenol because the pain's short-lived. But those with chronic pain, it's a different situation where they're having to manage it. But there are these pain clinics where you don't have to have an x-ray. You don't have to have a referral. People go in and they're just pill mills. And I think a lot of people think that don't go to those, but they get them from the doctors. They think, okay, I got this from a doctor, so it's okay. But your body doesn't know whether you got it from an alley or from a doctor. And then when they switch to heroin, they don't know what they're getting. Now you are getting it from an alley, and you, so you don't know what's in it, and it's very dangerous. I would bet you that a lot of the prescriptions that are written are done for pure financial gain, that people will have some of these little clinics that sit in places and people get prescriptions. And if you pay somebody enough money, you'll get a prescription. You've had a few surgeries yourself. Quite a few. How many times have you had your shoulder operated on? Uh, both shoulders five times. Both shoulders five times. <laughs> a total of five for. <laughs> yeah. And so what does this come from? Um, injuries as uh, high school and collegiate athletics in the right shoulder. Uh, I had a cancer in my shoulder one time when I was in my 30s, and then I had a rotator cuff in the other. So. What athletics did you play in college? Football and basketball all the way through graduate school, medical school at a collegiate level. When I was in Oregon, we played all the small college teams. I have to ask you about this whole controversy now of the brain injuries that are associated with the head trauma from sports, not just football, but primarily football, and what we're finding on autopsy from a lot of the NFL players that have had these injuries across time. What do you think about that? Is it overstated or is it a legitimate issue? Uh, I don't know if you know, but I actually work for the NFL as a sidelines concussion doctor. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, I'm seeing it on the weekends and uh, I believe that it's a real problem and it's something that is not going to go away. And I believe that Changing the game is one of the ways that I think this is going to be addressed. And some of my colleagues um, uh, that, that I trained with are, are finding things that are markers that are in the blood. Just like if you had a heart attack, you can do a blood test and you can say those enzymes are up and this guy's having a heart attack. That You can do the same thing with brain injury. This stuff's on the way. Let me break this down for a second. So a player 
gets their bell rung on the football field enough that they're slow getting up. So the rule is now they have to come out for one play. So they come out. And if there is concern that they may have a concussion, there now is a little tent set up on the sideline. What happens inside that tent that we can't see on television? We give them basically what's called a mental status examination. Where are you? What are you doing? Who scored the last time? Who did you play last week? You know, things that they should be able to answer like that. So at that point, they're not going back in? They're going to the locker room and actually we go back there and we do a more detailed test. We do a physical examination. We do things where they actually have to balance on one foot and a whole various battery of tests that we have them do. And if they get in the locker room and you can see clearly that they've had a concussion, what's the protocol? What happens then? Well, they, they end up in a protocol which is for the following days and may turn into weeks. And it depends on you know, the injury they had, they'll go see a neurologist who's actually part of the team physician staff. They have systems that are set up for them to be able to be evaluated. It may involve scanning their brain with CT and MRI and things like that if necessary. Uh, a lot of it comes down to just some of the cognitive testing. And, th and that's really where the subtleties occur that you can pick those things out. And, you know, they have baseline neuropsychiatric testing for all the players at the collegiate level, and it's reaching down into the high school level now. now you just said something that's very important. So they are getting a baseline. Correct. What are they looking at? It's, it's mostly a, uh, a memory testing is what it is. Mm -hmm. Some of it's actually pretty hard that I, <laughs> yeah. I think I have a hard time doing. They'll read to you different things, you know, a wallet, a, a pen, a, f a football, uh, you know, they give you 10 different objects to remember and they say, remember those things. We're going to come back after we go through all this other testing and they have you repeat numerical sequences back and forth. So a lot of it has to do with short term memory testing. There has been some big changes in the helmet technology and only about 60 percent of the NFL players will use this newest helmet technology. And if you look on TV, you say they've got these things that they look different. They're bigger. They have uh, different technology inside of those helmets, but not all of them are using them, which is surprising. When I practiced, a lot of my focus was brain and central nervous system closed head injuries. So I get a lot of people that know that asking me now, should I allow my sons to play football in high school? How do you answer that question if somebody says to you, should I let my son play high school football? You need to be realistic about what are, what are their skills? Is it something that's going to help them advance their life? If somebody is able to go to college because they play a collision sport, and it's going to allow them to get an education that they wouldn't otherwise. I can justify doing that one just because I think the risk of those injuries with changing the equipment and the game, the way it's played, I think it reduces it significantly. People can fall off their bicycle racing a bicycle and they can have injury. Every sport that exists has the potential. It's just such a hard one to get out of our culture and our society. I mean, tell the Europeans not to play soccer. Had it not been for college football, I would not have gone to college. And my football career was ended because of a head injury because I couldn't play football anymore. So I took up tennis and got a tennis scholarship. But I think there are about five to 7,000 professional athlete jobs available in the United States. That's not a lot. The chances are really slim. It's a very steep pyramid. So 
is it worth it? What is the likelihood that I played in grade school, junior high, high school, and college? What's the chance that I got through there without having a brain injury? Is that a risk-reward ratio a parent should take? I think it's part of our culture. I'm not sure how you, you can break that. You know, I think that sports and activities are things, those kind of things are what make us who we are. So it's hard to tell people not to do that. There's been a lot of research about when people have a herniated disc, whether operating on it helps or doesn't help. Do you operate on that or do you not? Wow, huge, huge question, which comes down to multiple, multiple variables. In fact, my philosophy is unless somebody has uh, debilitating loss of function or they have intractable pain, you leave it alone as long as you can because a lot of them do get better. Probably more of them get better than people realize. I mean, the general public out there thinks herniated disc, I got a, you know, I got a serious problem and I got to have something done about it. And actually, sometimes the less that's done besides taking some anti-inflammatory medications you can buy over the counter is the best thing you can do. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, stay away from surgeons. Right. You remember I had disc in my low back. I remember when you first looked at it, you went, oh, (laughs) but you recommended not surgery. You recommended epidural injections. You said this could last for a year and then come back and it last for another year. And it happened exactly that way. Then it just went away. And I still play tennis every day and do all of those things. And it's not been a problem without the surgery. So that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. The body heals itself. The body is an amazing thing. You know, (laughs) God made an incredible machine. Right. But when you do operate at this point, the technology is advanced to the point that you truly can help people immensely when you go in and clean up and free up the nerves. But this has truly advanced immensely in the last 20, 30 years. Absolutely, it has. And there's a number of reasons why. Uh, The imaging technology to be able to see inside of the human body and understand what's there. MRI scanning didn't come into existence until about 1985, 86. which is when I was finishing medical school. And then we've learned how to understand what all the changes that take place. We know what the normal body looks like and then which ones are gonna get better, which ones aren't gonna get better. The surgeons have gotten better and better. The technology that we have available to fix problems has gotten better. We do things like artificial discs now and you know, I ran the first trials here in Los Angeles and we're just starting to understand how to use them now. 14 years later. So we've got a lot of technology. We're still learning to use it in the right ways and where, when, how, and why. Where is this field 10 years from now? Oh boy, that's a hard question. (laughs) It's a very hard question. Because people are getting older and their expectations are greater, people don't sit at home on the porch and watch the cars drive by and the kids play in in the yard. They want to be out. They want to be functional. And so it puts an enormous amount of pressure on us as surgeons to to be able to perform supposedly miraculous things. I'm not answering your question about where we're going to be in 10 years. I'm going to try and get to that. But I I think we we have to 
uh, developed some newer technology to avoid doing fusion operations in the spine. I did an operation in you without fusing your neck. Right. We're starting to do artificial discs in those situations now. I mean, we can do it front, the back, we can do different operations, but it's how not to fuse the spine because once you fuse somebody's spine, it changes the mechanics and they start wearing out the next vertebrae and it's an inevitability. It's going to happen. That's one of my biggest misgivings is that, you know, I train a lot of young surgeons and I've trained over 70 of them that have gone out in the country and the world. I wish I could train 700, make huge differences. That's what I really wish I could do. I, I don't have enough um, of my tentacles out there to influence people as much as I would. I, I just, not that I know more than all my colleagues out there, but I really think that taking a kinder, gentler approach it's a philosophical to approach. Surgery, it right. is. How to do the most for the least is what it's really about to me. Do you think we're going to get to a point, particularly with imaging, where you're going to be able to do some of these things with less insult to the body? We're already doing it. I mean, you hear about it in spinal surgery that uh, minimally invasive is the new thing. And what it does is really it's doing big operations through small incisions. I've wondered sometimes if medical technology is moving so fast that medical technology is outstripping morality. And what I mean by that is, are we keeping people alive today that it's inhumane to do? I think it's, it's a practical thing is that we have the ability to keep people alive which it comes down to a quality of life. I think that we also have uh, a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of insight. We have a very sophisticated society. I believe that, uh, I believe pe people should have those decisions made. I think that's probably one of the answers to your question is that should we be doing it without somebody's consent I think that having a will, having a, having a, uh, a decision-making process of what somebody wants is certainly a way to, to deal with that. When I worked as a litigation consultant, back when I had a real job, I actually did not a wrongful death, but a wrongful life lawsuit that I was involved in because parents had a child and they knew the child had serious birth defects and they said, we do not want you to do the extraordinary measures to keep this child alive at birth if that's what it comes down to. They did so anyway. And so the child lived for like a year and a half, horrible existence, a suffering existence, bankrupt the family, the child suffered, and they sued the hospital for wrongful life. I mean, that was what really raised the question with me. Is there a point at which, you know, science outstrips morality? That's and, practicality. Yeah. I mean, that, that's practicality. And I think there are, there are people involved in medical ethics who, who really need to help yeah. solve those specific kinds of problems and give us the answers. And and yes, I have my own strong views about it as well, is that there certainly is a limit. Well, I don't know the answer, but I do recognize the question, and I think we're going to face it more and more as science progresses. Dr. Pat Johnson, thank you. 
<laughs> I cannot tell you how fascinating this all is to me and how much I appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's truly an honor to be here. And uh... Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy your friendship. Well, I'm the same way. I appreciate it. Thank you okay, so much. Well. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Yeah, you were just listening to Dr. J. Patrick Johnson, and I chose this time to put him up on the podcast because it's about time to be starting football practice and soccer practice and things that can really affect head and spine type injuries. I thought it would be a good time for parents and young people to hear from him because we're getting ready to go back to school and usually start practice before you do go back to school. But when you think about going back to school... You think about your kids being out there in the world, and safety is your number one concern. We want our kids to leave the door of the house in the morning and come back at the end of the day safe. Tracy Arlington is a friend of mine. She's been on the show, and she has a program called Play It Safe Defense, which is an organization that teaches life-saving self-defense techniques to women, men, and children. And she particularly focuses on children in ways that I think is critically important if your child gets approached by somebody that is trying to abduct them or molest them in some way and she talks about the things that you can do in training your kids to be safe so we're going to talk about that and listen to what we're talking about here and how we do it and one of the things that i cannot emphasize enough everything you're getting ready to hear has to be practiced it has to be role-played You've got to do it yourself when we're talking about rape escape. You've got to do it with your children when you're teaching them how to keep themselves safe if somebody tries to abduct them or molest them. And if you don't role play it and they're doing it for the first time, when it really happens, they're apt to freeze up. But if you've role-played it with them, if you've practiced with them where they've done it 10 times, when it comes time to do it for real, it can save their lives. So what you're getting ready to listen to can be life-saving for you and life-saving for your children. So here we go with Tracy Arlington. I'm here talking to Tracy Arlington. Your company is... Play Safe Defense. Now, you know how to play it safe and take care of yourself because you're a black belt in Taekwondo, correct? Correct. What caused you to stay with it to the point of being a black belt? I definitely um, just wanted to complete the journey, but there was always that tug on my heart. Um, I I call it a God thing where I was just destined to teach self-defense to non-martial art people because Mm -hmm. there's such a need for it. So many parents want their children to know how to self-protect, but they don't have time for the martial arts. So that's kind of how it started. All right. So tell me about Play It Safe. What is it you guys 
set out to do. What's your mission statement? Our mission statement is to teach children how to self-protect, teaching them the ABCs of self-defense, awareness, boundaries, and the chihuahua confidence to set the boundary, mm-hmm. um, but in an age-appropriate way. So uh, we teach kids as, as young as four, and of course, we're going to teach them a lot different than we would a teenager, but the, the kids get that whole concept. If a chihuahua can bark off a big dog, they can too. So right. their biggest weapon is their voice, and that's what we really want to teach them to use. Define chihuahua crazy for me, because that is a great concept. Well, it's not the size of the dog of the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And we all know how annoying chihuahuas are. So they're annoying, they're feisty, they're loud. And that's basically what we teach children. So if a stranger grabbed them, God forbid, we teach them to go to the ground, have a self-defense temper tantrum and and go chihuahua attracting attention. Okay. Now, if someone that they don't trust actually comes up and reaches for them, grabs them, You say the first thing to do is go to the ground. We have plan A, plan B, plan C. Plan A is stranger talks to me. I don't have an adult, so I'm going to run to safe people. And then we define who those safe adults are and yell, stranger, stranger, 911. Plan B is they grab me. I'm going to strike, break away, and run. Plan C is go to the ground if they're being picked up. So plan A A. is to... Use your feet for self-defense and run, run away. and yell to safe people. Okay, Correct. and how do you define safe people for these kids? Moms with kids, families with kids, groups of people, even if you don't know them, groups are safe, and then an employee, but make sure that the worker is working. What age can a child understand what you just said? Four. I, I believe it's four. And, okay. and the number one advice that I would love for parents to remember is we need to stop teaching our children, don't talk to strangers. We need to tell our kids, don't even stop and listen to strangers. Because once they get you know, closer than about 20 feet, you know, they can be scooped. Up. All right. Now, that's a great point. It's not just don't talk to strangers, don't listen to them, don't, don't stop and hear what they're having to say. If a stranger's talking to you, keep on moving. Exactly. Okay. Right. If someone is approaching them, run and start yelling. Right. And what do they yell? Right. Stranger, stranger, 911. Help 911. You're not my dad. You're not my mom. But what we really want them to remember is not to screech or scream because people think that, you know, they're playing. And permission protects. That's huge, too. Permission that... uh, Strangers aren't going to talk to kids, good strangers, without permission. Children need to get permission before they even engage with an adult. Right. This is what impressed me about you. The reason out of all of the self-defense experts in the country, I invited you onto the show in 09 and back here now is that you recommend role-playing with your children? Basically, it's to create the what-if scenario. So, you know, picking your child up from behind and putting your hand over their mouth and having them wiggle and kick out of it is writing the script for their brain so that they have a place to go and they don't freeze. We have to, as parents, we have to write that script. It's pulling them and and saying, what are you going to do? And practicing kicking and striking or going to the ground and having a temper tantrum because— If they don't do it, if it really happened, their mind won't have a place to go. Well, that's what I want people to hear so strongly, because if you're asking a child to do this for the first time ever in a real situation, they're going to freeze. 
practice makes perfect. You've got to rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. They don't know what is modulated and what's not. When you say go chihuahua crazy, you mean go chihuahua crazy. Kick as many times as you can, as fast as you can. Yell as many times as necessary, whatever. Make it where this person says, whoa, screw the cheese. I want out of the trap. <laughs> exactly. Get me out of yeah, here. Going nuts. Make yourself undesirable. <laughs> yeah, because I've, I've counseled rape victims to do exactly that. Anything they can do to make yeah. themselves undesirable any way that they can, where it's like, this is not worth the trouble. Exactly. Words and run. Okay, right. that's A. B? Okay. B is somebody grabs you. If you can, strike and then break out of the wrist grab and run to save people. Well, if you're deal, if you're teaching a four-year-old, four, five, six-year-old, um, maybe if the person bends down and says, you know, shh, come with me, they could strike to the eyes. But really for the littles, the most they're probably going to be able to do is maybe kick somebody in the shin and run. But the bigger kids, you know, we teach eye gouge, breaking glasses, nose, a groin kick. I think with striking and breaking, that's something that really does need to be practiced. So I love right. plan C, going to the ground so they can't move you to crime scene number two, because you and I know what happens at crime scene number two, and yeah. it's not good. Let's talk about that for a second. But first, let's talk about going to the ground. Mm -hmm. The reason you have them go to the ground on their back, kicking and screaming is why? Because they're having a, they're attracting attention, so it's a it's really difficult to pick up a child when they're kicking and screaming. And if they're screaming, you're not my dad or stranger. Hopefully, that's going to attract attention. Right. And and it's hard to put a kid in the car. They could be holding onto their bike. They could be holding onto another child. But it's really important to be kicking. Because yeah, it's like trying to pick up a buzzsaw, right? Oh my gosh! I mean, if the child is kicking and screaming. Stranger, stranger, 911, and they're kicking and kicking and kicking, and somebody's having to bend down to try to pick them up. There's no way they're not going to get kicked in the face, get kicked in the stomach, get kicked in the groin. So it's just hard to get them wrapped up. Right. Now, one of the things I want to say here is, and this goes along with the role playing with parents, I realize there's some risk here that kids can exploit this, but you have to give your children permission to be wrong. Correct. Okay, so if a child misreads a situation, and so they kick, yell, scream, go chihuahua crazy, and it turns out it was their Uncle Bob who mom sent over, and mom needs to come up with a better plan. You've got to give your child permission to be wrong. Right. We always say it's your safety first, then his feelings. Mm -hmm. And and they do. They ask me, what if what if uh, it's just someone that's talking to me and they and they made a mistake? And I said, well, permission protects. Did they get permission to talk to you? No. Well, then why should you assume that they're making a mistake? Here's another safety tip I, I really hope parents get is that if a stranger were to talk to their child uh, without permission, obviously something's wrong, but a child is going to feel naturally, we call it the creep alarm, mm -hmm. but we call it creep alarm. And so if they're feeling that we need to teach them to listen, listen to that feeling. And, um, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a teacher or a clergy or someone like that. Yeah. They, they need to know that that feeling is a protective feeling. Yeah. I call it the creep meter. And if that creep meter is pegging, you need to pay attention to it. So right. in terms of role playing, and I did this with my boys too. I've got two boys, Jordan and Jay. When I role played with them, dads, moms, 
get a cup, get a helmet, do whatever you have to do, but you need to take that child out there and let them go nuts. I mean, let them hit you, kick Mm -hmm. you, squirm, fight, scratch, wiggle, drop, run, everything to get away. They They do. They think it's a great game. But if they've done that a hundred times in that moment where somebody grabs their arm and pulls them forward, in that split second, reflex will kick in and can save their lives. Right. And it's only going to come from role play and repetitive behavior. You said if you're walking along the street and a car pulls up beside you and starts to talk to you, you made the point of immediately reverse direction and walk the other way. Right. Because you can turn around faster than that car can turn around. Right. We actually teach them not even to walk with traffic. We're always saying walk against traffic. Keep a car or a stranger more than five arm lengths away. Don't stop and listen. Because last year in San Diego, we had 18 attempted abductions that I am aware of. Wow. No one was taken. And these were all kids under the age of 20. And they all had the same common denominator. They were walking alone, walking with traffic. One of the things I want to show here, so I'll go to the Dr. Phil clip, which is right here. Now tell us what we're looking at here. Always been taught in the martial so arts to fight on here, feet, um, I'm going to be pulling Kaylin, and she's she can't their reach me, defense, my face, and if she kicks voice, me, I could grab her leg. So before legs, I can scoop ground, her up, have a she's going to go down. Go what All we right, call let's watch. Crazy. Is that a chihuahua or what, right? Okay, so ready? All right, let's, so here let's we see go. It. You ready? So, hey, come with me. Come here. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. I'm going to hurt you. Be quiet. Oh, oh, oh. Good job. Good job. Okay. Now, the whole purpose of getting her on the ground is what? So she can't be picked up. It's harder to get her up and Especially if there's a car involved. I mean, how many of you have tried to pick up a two-year-old who's having a temper tantrum? Can you imagine, Dr. Phil, if this were a woman or a teenager, in fact, it's even more difficult. Right. Uh, And very common with with children. This little girl's going to try it for the first time, right? Right, right. So let's say she's walking alone. We don't want to be walking alone. Somebody pulls up in a car or they come up behind her. And it's really important. We teach our children when you walk by a stranger, always look over your shoulder, know where they're at. So let's say she didn't do that and this happens. That's slippery fish wiggly fish. Be quiet. Good job. All right, good. Right now. All right. Now, this is what so, parents need so to role play, is, right? Is exactly what you're doing right here. Easy peasy. Okay, they love it. This? Turn it into yeah. a game. I think that right. every child should do it if they see a stranger. Do you think you could do it? Yes. You think you could do it right now if, if she grabbed you? You think you could get on the ground and start kicking and screaming? Yes. Well, let's give it a try. Okay. All right. Evie, have you ever had that a That was the first tantrum? time she saw that. Oh, good. <laughs> good. All right, here we go. What I'm going to do, the minute you feel me touch you, don't let me pull you. I could be pulling you into a car, right? So you're going to drop on your bottom. You're going to kick, go chihuahua crazy, Just kick and scream. And I want to hear stranger, not help. Because if adults hear you scream help, they might think you're playing. Okay, you ready? All right, here I come. Turn around, face me. So, hey, come here, little girl. I want to talk to you. Come here. Hey, hey, what are you stranger, doing? Stranger, nine hey, one one. Stop it. Stranger, stranger, nine one one. Stranger, stranger, nine one one. Stop. Good, 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 good. 
That was awesome. Yeah. She watches it one time. Amazing. Yeah. That's what I want parents to see. This yeah. little girl observed this one time uh-huh. and role-played it. And the difference between even one practice session and no practice session can be life or death. Yeah. But I've always preached, do not let someone take you to a second location. If you're going to make your fight, you make it right here, right uh-huh. now. Do not let them take you to a second location. You agree with that? It's Yeah, it's the difference between life and death. I've always been told you have a 1% chance of coming home alive if you're a child, and most child abductions happen anywhere about three quarters of a mile from home. You say if they take you to a second location, you got a 1% chance of coming coming home. home. Correct. I don't like to, when I teach children, I don't tell them the the hard realities of of life. They always say, this is a, yeah, why would a stranger want to take me? And I always say this because they want you to clean their toilets for 20 years and they go, I knew it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then of course, as they get older, we tell them the truth. Did you hear about the Slurpee defense last week? No. So four girls in Michigan, 11 and 12, were coming out of a a 7-Eleven. Two had Slurpees, two had iced coffees. A guy targeted the smallest girl, put his hand over her mouth and said, come with me and don't fight. And all four of them dumped their Slurpees and coffees on the guy. His mugshot, you can see the Slurpee all over (laughs) his shirt. Yeah. And uh, you you should interview these girls. And guess what the girl said? You're going to love this. They said, where did you learn to react like that? My dad, he taught my sister and I self-defense, and he said, always kick, fight, and use whatever we have in our hands as a weapon. We just happen to have Slurpees. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is so good. Yeah. You say this got to start early, and mm-hmm. there's a Department of Justice statistic. 83% of rape victims are between the ages of 12 and 25. Yep. It starts early, and that's Uh why you've got to get to these kids before they're in the target zone. One in three girls, one in six boys are sexually assaulted before they're even 18. One in three and one in six, yeah. 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 90% of women assaulted knew their assailant. Correct. So it's not always strangers. It can be somebody that you either work with, you've seen, you have some. Mm -hmm. It's not that you have an intimate relationship with them. 25% of college women surveyed are victims of rape or attempted rape. Right. When these young women get on college campuses, maybe they're away from home for the first time, and they think, okay, I'm on a college campus. This is an institution of higher learning. You know, we're safe here. Well, the fact is they're in a target-rich environment. Right. And they may think it's safe because there are high principles there. But a predator knows there are women's dorms here. They will really start hanging around those areas, looking for the places where they can strike, particularly if they find someone alone. And that's not even talking about date rape for these young women that get away from home and get intoxicated for the first time and all right, of that. Right. They call October red zone month. Right. Right. And red zone month is because that's pretty much when everyone's, you know, settled down, they've met people and now they're going to parties. And we all know that alcohol and date rape drugs are the number one weapon that's used on anybody. And so we all, we have to tell our girls, you know, being alone, being distracted, you know, on your cell phones. And of course, that's going to put a target on your back. But that drunk girl or that girl that's been drugged, 
she's the easiest target of all. And you know one thing I want parents to discuss with their college-bound students? Did you know house parties are a lot worse than a frat party or a sorority party? Because fraternities and sororities tend to have to go by the rules. Sometimes they won't even let you in if you're not on the guest list. But a house party, people come in from outside of the universities. They might not even be a student there. They rape a drunk girl. We can't even find the rapist because he doesn't even go to the school. Right. And 90% of all campus rapes involve alcohol. 90%. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're getting drunk and they're not watching each other. Yeah. We're telling the girls to take their own water containers with them to parties. I like the flip tops so that you can't put powder or a pill or liquid in there. Um, Get rid of the solo cups. We're having to tell girls this. Can you believe that? Well, and guys too. I have a guy that works with me that was drugged. He thinks that drink was intended for somebody else, Mm -hmm. but he was robbed because he passed out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Drugged, yeah. yeah. And you know what I really want these girls to understand too is that, you know, according to that college, they did a college survey on this. 68% of girls don't report it because they think it was their fault, but they don't understand that we have a law called the yes means yes law. Mm-hmm. It's a consent law. And it's rape if she hasn't said yes. And even if she does say yes, if she's under the influence of alcohol or drugs, automatic non-consensual sex. Girls don't understand that. If they knew that, that would be an, you know, an ace in their pocket. I'm glad you brought that up. And I want everyone that's listening to this to understand, if you are over a .08, you do not have capacity to give consent. Thank you. If you can't drive a motor vehicle because you are impaired, then you do not have capacity to give consent. You don't have capacity to enter a contract, and you certainly don't have capacity to give consent for someone to use your body as a playground. I love that. So if you don't have the capacity to give consent, then you cannot have consensual sex. Mm -hmm. They need to understand that. It's not your fault. You don't have to be feeling guilty about it. So... If you've been drinking, that doesn't mean, okay, you're a slut. You went out and got drunk, so you need to feel guilty. That's not the case. Right, and that's the message we're really trying to get through to these girls is they have to go to their Title IX coordinators and they need to report it. Did you know that in that college survey, it was anonymous, by the way, of 36 campuses, the average time that um, in four years that a guy had sexually assaulted a girl was 33 times. And that could be anywhere from inappropriate touch to rape. And they said in the survey, they targeted the drunk girl. Yeah. Of course they did. Yeah. Now, you talk to these young women at college about how to protect themselves. This needs to be role-played. Right. Right. But the first thing you have them do when somebody approaches them or grabs them is you have them strike with the device. Uh Uh-huh. And then distance themselves, right? Right, Uh uh-huh. And that device could be a pen. It could be anything. Right, Okay, so have this in your hand, have it Mm -hmm. ready. Strike, distance, and again, use your voice loud and authoritative, right? Exactly, right. And if you can, run, because your strongest weapons are your legs. It's better to run, though, than to have to use them. Right. And what should they yell? You're on campus, somebody has approached you, they've reached for you, grabbed you, you make a strike, You get distance between you. If you've got the pepper spray, you use it. What should you yell? I still like help 911, stranger 911, but rape 911, that will bring the cavalry. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. 
your best defense is to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. Don't be alone Correct. on campus. Use the buddy system. Uh-huh. Stay with somebody right. else. Don't be telling people on social media, oh my God, I have to go to the library tonight because guess what? You know, people might know you're alone at the library and now you have to walk back to the dorm. So, yeah. you know, you know, be smart about your, your social media. And the thing I want people to understand is this just doesn't happen to other people. No. This happens to you. Right. This can happen to you. It can happen to your friends. And it's just so easy to say, let's go together, let's walk together, Mm -hmm. and let's take the long way because it's lit. Let's stay on the path. Let's do this. Let's call campus security to walk us. That's what they're there for. They will. They will. They will meet you at the library door, and they will walk you where you're going. Right. That's so very important. And report, report, because so many of the rapes that I hear about is happens, it's within the dorm environment. Do you know, Dr. Phil, it just happened the other day. The one question I ask girls, and it blows my mind that they don't know the answer to is, what's the difference between date rape and acquaintance? And they sit there and stare at me. They, they don't even understand the difference between date and acquaintance. So if you figure that that's the majority who of who's uh, perpetrating these crimes... Right. It's going to be within that that college community. All right. Mm-hmm. So number one is awareness. We want young women to understand that the first three months that they're at school is a danger zone. Right. They need to recognize that they need to be aware they're putting themselves in harm's way. Right. Number two, have a plan. Right. right? I mean, carry something in their hand that they can use to fend off an attacker. Obviously, the buddy system they right. should have. But if they get where somebody approaches them or grabs them, use that weapon in their hand. Like mm-hmm. you say, even a ballpoint pen, you stab some guy in the oh. collarbone right here, he's not going to like it. Right. You know, stab, then distance and yell. Use that voice. Absolutely. Use that voice. Yeah. And you know, another thing I'd like to add to is because it is most of the time date and acquaintance, I just want to just scream to the world, girls, set the boundaries up front. Do you know how yeah. many stories we hear about Girl goes back to the guy's apartment. She's drunk or she's been drinking. He assumes then they have sex. She cries rape. And then he says, well, why did you come back to my apartment? Women, we need we need to, or moms, we need to teach our daughters and sons to say, listen, these are the rules. I mean, I'm going out with you tonight. Don't expect me to go back to your apartment. Or, okay, I'll go to your apartment, but that doesn't mean I'm going to sleep with you. Just, just set those boundaries from the get-go. Right. I'm talking to Tracy Arlington, and we're talking about how to protect yourself, how to get your children to learn to protect themselves. And now I want to talk about bullying. You, again, have some great, actually hands-on, specific advice for kids to use if they're being bullied at school. So take us through that. Let's assume that we've got a kid that's being just tormented, verbally abused at school. We just Recently had a young man that was nine years old. He was gay at a school in Denver, Colorado. He was in school for four days and killed himself reportedly because of bullying. And we see this just so often time and time again. Right. I just know if you had worked with this young man before he started school and he had some techniques and 
and skills and abilities, he would be alive today. Right. What do you tell kids that are being bullied? Well, it's two, it's two-sided. So um, with the little ones, we find that it's not as much bullying as it is more friendship drama. But then when we, we get into middle school and high school, um, that's probably where we see more of the, the bullying that killed this young man. I have to tell you, um, the, the Girl Scouts call me the girl whisperer because girl drama is my specialty. And friendship conflict is probably what we see the most. So I would say the majority of parents that bring their kids into our class, it's it's to handle all of that. You're not my friend anymore. Um, you can't play with us because you're not good. Um, I'm better at that than you are. So what we do is we teach them verbal karate. So you punch me with a mean comment. So um, yeah, go ahead and tell me I'm ugly and I'm going to show you the wrong way. All right. You're just an ugly loser. Yeah, whatever. Like, I really care what you think just because you're Dr. Phil. <laughs> See? Well, that really so, hurts. Yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> so that's the wrong way to handle it, right? Because didn't I just lose my power to you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Sassiness attracts more sassiness. Yeah. I have this huge poster of a sassy Sasquatch that we tell the kids, you don't want to say, so I don't care who cares or whatever. So now we're going to replace those with more powerful responses. So <laughs> Because when you do what you're talking about, then they've poked... And you've reacted, you've and responded. They they've got the desired reaction. And they have your power. Yeah, they've gotten right. under your skin, so uh -huh. they've got control. Right. Okay, so. Now, so tell me I'm ugly right. again. All right, you're just an ugly loser. Oh, that's good to know. Hey, um, how was your summer? Uh, well, you, uh, uh, fine. <laughs> I mean, it, it takes the air out of it. It takes right. the air out of the balloon, right? right? Yeah. So responses like, um, we have an acronym called WINNER. W, walk away. I, ignore the comment and don't look back. N, no sassiness. Say, okay, sure, or good to know, or indeed, <laughs> noted. The next N, say something nice, change the subject. E is exit, so don't engage, don't fight. And then the R is report. And that's mm -hmm. our acronym. And so we actually role play the kids in the class they have. They go back and forth. So they'll say, you're a baby. And then the other, their partner has to say, hey, good to know. And they practice back and forth, back and forth. And then what we also do, though, and which I'm very proud of is uh, about, is that we teach them to resolve conflict with the yo-yo friend, because that's the number one complaint I hear from the kids. One day she's nice to me, the next day she's not. Then she's nice, then she's not. And so we actually talk about the difference between a yo-yo friend and a true friend and how to resolve that conflict with that friend, because that's what I hear the most in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Then you turn the road and you get to middle school and high school, and that's where we see you know, uh, more of the you know, bullying at, at its extreme. Okay. Yeah. So obviously, I think in middle school and high school, it's getting kids to recognize, and we do this with elementary school kids as well, but getting kids to realize what are, what, what bullying is and what mean be, versus mean behaviors. So I'll ask them, if I say to you, Dr. Phil, oh my gosh, what are you eating? That's disgusting. Go over there and eat that. Am I being rude and mean or am I being a bully? And kids will say, I'm being a bully. 
And I say, no, no. If I'm, if it's constant though, if I keep picking on you and I'm picking on you for some reason, and but everybody else I'm nice to, so it's targeted, that's bullying. So getting kids to understand that. And then we list off every mean behavior that we can think of. And do you know, a lot of these behaviors, kids don't even realize are bullying, like, you know, embarrassing someone in front of their class, correcting someone, the eye roll, whispering in front of. That is a really disrespectful behavior. So we start listing them. And then the teachers, the feedback that we're getting is once kids understand what types of behaviors are, are could be considered bullying, um, that helps a lot. But dealing with an aggressive bully, someone that wants to physically hit you, um, the best advice that we have is keep a mean kid more than two arm lengths away so they can't hit you or push you. Use your voice to attract attention. Make sure your hands are up so people can see that. Uh, no pointing or this, because that's, you know, fight. This is a girl fight. And yeah. a tr noise attracts attention. And that actually happened to me in high school. And I used that and it worked. Mm -hmm. I had six girls try to jump me when I was a senior in high school. And I wasn't even in the martial arts. So what have we not talked about that's important for parents to know? I think, you know, I, I'd like to get back to the sexual assault prevention because 90% of the time it's someone that they know. Um, one of my favorite resources is Mama Bear Effect. It it's, gives parents language on, on actually how to talk to their children instead of saying, hey, what did you do today? Did you have fun? It's, it's like, uh, hey, what did you do today that was fun? You know, did you do anything today that maybe wasn't so fun? So getting more information out of their children. So what we do is we encourage parents and we do this in our class to actually role play a scenario where a little girl or a little boy goes to a friend's house and the big brother says, hey, come to my room. Um, I want to show you our dog just had puppies and I want to show you the puppies that are in my room. And then we watch the child. We watch the creep alarm go off a cube. S-T-O-P. Keep your hands away from me. A bad secret I won't keep. I'm going to tell when I feel creeped. <laughs> that's great. Isn't that cute? I love that. Yep, yep. And that's something that kids can learn and, they and understand. love it. Your singing career's just gone by. I think I'll stick to the chihuahua yapping, yeah. okay? <laughs> well, it's Play It Safe, and this is Tracy Arlington, and all of this is going to be on the website. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and I promise you, you have saved some lives I in the last so. hour we've been talking. Thanks Tracy, to you. Thank you, thank you so you much. So Great much. to see you. All right, thanks. Okay. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.